And that cash flow, I want to point out, it's after tax cash flow. Right. These are tax savings. So this isn't as if you've invested in another more conventional investment, received the income, and then had to pay tax on it, so right. you're left with half. These are tax savings that you would have otherwise written checks to the government for. Hi, my name is Dave Sanderson. Welcome to the Red Jacket podcast. At Red Jacket, we believe wealth is the fountainhead of flourishing, not just for you and your family, but for a society. We work with clients who want to grow and protect that wealth. And the greatest destroyer of that wealth is taxation, direct taxation, income tax, corporate tax, and indirect taxation, inflation, which is built into the fiat monetary system. On this podcast, we share with you our insights, our experience, and our relationships, not just so that you can fight those forces, but so that you can exploit them. We hope you enjoy. Thanks for listening. Okay, Ken, let's do uh, an unboxing video for Equigenesis, which is to say, let's keep it at a high level. For someone who's brand new to the product, how does this thing work? right from the point where the client writes the first check for say $10,000, let's use the minimum purchase, and then let's walk through the example. Keep it reasonably tight, so just somebody can understand how this product works, and then we'll do another session and we'll go deep on each of the pieces of the program. Make sense? Sure. Okay. So this structure is designed to be appealing to an investor who pays income at the highest levels and wants an annual reduction of that cost, tax cost, so that they can increase their cash flow. And this program occurs over 10 years and is designed to create that positive cash flow year after year. So in the example you gave, the minimum purchase is 10 units. And because this is high level, I won't go into the details, but you're, you're going to write a check in the first year on 10 units for $10,000. You will get tax benefits by the end of that year that will save you tax well in excess of that $10,000. So you're going to have immediate positive cash flow right from day one. There may be a timing issue in terms of whether you reduce your quarterly installments or get a refund back the following year, but you're going to save tax every year. Because of the leverage which is built into the structure, which I'll call protected leverage in the sense that it's secured and payable only out of the investment, you get increasing tax deductions, which are primarily based on interest expense and then some additional related costs from the partnership. But every single year, you're going to write another check. So in the second year, you'll write a check for $14,000. We're slowly ratcheting up the payments. But you're going to save tax well in excess of $14,000. So already at the end of the second year, you're significantly cash flow positive. Year three, you get to the maximum payment level, meaning you're going to start to pay $18,000 a year for every year till the end of the maturity at the end of the 10th year. But you're going to get tax savings that grow year after year after year. And every year, those tax savings will always significantly exceed the cost to put to get into the structure. So we're creating growing annual cash flow such that at the end, you put in your pocket 
depending on when you buy in the year, somewhere around $150,000. We then have to figure out how do we optimize the unwind or termination of the structure? Because at the heart of the structure, what makes it work is the deferral of income on your underlying investment so that you get to claim the tax benefits without having to claim the income. So it means that income is growing and growing and growing throughout the entire term of the investment. And if we didn't do anything to tax affect the termination, you would end up suddenly getting all that income to claim at the end. And that would terminate in a very ineffective way, inefficient way. So what we do is we offer several alternatives. We've always offered what we call scenario A, B, and C. But over time, we found that Virtually 100% of investors will opt for scenario C, which is by far the most tax efficient. What scenario C allows you to do is take your investment in these limited partnership units, which has been growing over time, year after year after year. And on maturity, first your loan gets terminated, paid off from the investment, so you're debt-free. Then immediately you have the option to exchange your limited partnership units for mutual fund trust units, which fits perfectly within a provision in the Income Tax Act, which is designed to encourage you to take these types of investments and tax effectively donate them to a charity. So first you unwind the debt, pay off your debt. Second, you exchange and donate. So, sorry, you exchange limited partnership units for mutual fund trust units, then you donate to a charity. And the net proceeds that go to the charity of your choice, the charity keeps. And when they liquidate those units and they get cash in their bank account, the charity then issues you a charitable donation receipt equal to the cash. So at that point, you've avoided the huge tax liability that would have otherwise occurred. You've created huge value for a charity or charities of your choice. And you end up cash positive at that point by somewhere around $230,000 to $250,000. Okay, let's, let's stop there. <clears throat> Perfect. What is, it, what is it? Let's put it in real terms for the client. That client wrote a check in year one for $10,000. They buy units, meaning they're buying units of a limited partnership. Correct. But they didn't just buy 10,000 bucks worth of units that year. Correct. They bought $330,000 worth of units in that first year. Exactly, yes. The other 320,000 was a loan. Correct. Correct. Okay. So you write a check for 10, you get a loan for 320. The loan is limited recourse, meaning there's no recourse to the investor. Correct. Recourse only to the units. The units are pledged. So. No worry about coming after the investor. And it's that $320,000 loan that generates all the tax deduction because that loan has an interest rate of what on it? That loan has an interest rate, which is starts at about 11%, drops to 10% after three years. And that 11%, for example, in the first year, that's an interest expense in that year, and that's the majority of the deduction in that year. Yes, except in the first five years, you're also able to deduct a significant amount of the 
dollars that you write a check for right. in the form of issue costs. Right. So you'll get both, but over time it becomes primarily the interest expense. So if somebody writes a check in January, let's say, they're going to get the entire year's worth of interest expense. Their deduction against marginal income at the end of that year is going to be about $40,000, right? Their deduction will be about forty. So I write a check for ten. I deduct forty from my in Ontario fifty three point five three marginal income tax rate. I just saved over twenty grand there. I'm up ten grand in the first year. Correct. This goes on for the life of the check writing. You're going to write ten, fourteen in the second year, eighteen thousand in the third year. Correct. You add up all those, and we'll talk about this. But you subtract a little income that comes back from the portfolio, which is set. Your total check writing is $128,000, correct? Net. Over 10 years, That's after this deducting client, the income. Correct. The, 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 after deducting what comes back to them, not after deducting the big interest expense on their tax return. They're going to write checks for 128. They're going to be out of pocket 128, correct? Yes. But they're getting these major deductions every year that are mostly made up of interest expense, which is a very basic deduction, so long as the money is being used to invest. We'll talk about that. And all those deductions add up to, what, 700000 against income? Correct. Well, if you take 700000 from your top-line income, you just saved yourself $350,000 in tax. Correct? Correct. So you got three fifty that you didn't pay in tax. You're out one twenty eight. There's your delta of two twenty two, right? So your cash flow positive, all that money, correct? Over ten years. Somebody who buys the minimum number of units is up two hundred and fifty thousand dollars in ten years. That's real cash. You got to make five hundred to put two fifty in your bank account. That's that's. So, so, so that's the basic product, right? We just, we just ran through at a very high level what's in it for somebody to keep listening to here. And that cash flow, I want to point out, it's after tax cash flow, right? These are tax savings. So this isn't as if you've invested in another more conventional investment, received the income and then had to pay tax on it. So right. you're left with half. These are tax savings that you would have otherwise written checks to the government for. I love that because you otherwise would have reported 700 in income and written checks to the government for 350. So the question is, where's the 350 go? The answer is beautiful. Well, 250 of it goes in your bank account and a hundred of it goes to your charity of choice that actually gets used in that charity. That's, that's where we hear it's too good to be true, right? Instead of sending 350 in, you're keeping 250 and sending a hundred to to your charity. But we think in this environment where people are are significantly more conscious and they're environmentally conscious, mm -hmm. they're socially conscious, they this allows them an extremely tax efficient way to help society while they help themselves. They're going to give real money in cash to a charity or charities that they choose for causes they believe in. At the same time they're going to put a quarter of a million dollars of what would otherwise have been sent to the government in their pocket. So, so this fits. I always look at it like who is going to buy this? Well, first of all, 
you have to have marginal income. You have to have uh, income at 53 or so. You want to be using to get top the maximum value. Right? Right. right. Correct. You also have to have income for the next 10 years. It's a 10-year program. We could talk about getting out of it early, which is possible, but have income that you can see for 10 years. Now, maybe you're not going to be working for those 10 years, but if you're extracting from your RSP, you can Correct. do that too, right? Because that's taxable when you pull it out. Right. So um, let's talk about the other big pieces, the loan. Why shouldn't somebody be nervous about taking out a $320,000 loan? By the way, the loan's going to increase in the amount of interest every year because they're not paying that interest. They're just, well, they are paying it, but they're borrowing more, right? So talk about why they should feel very comfortable with a gigantic loan like that. This is structured to make sure that two things happen. Number one, that part of the money that you put in to buy your units, if you were to mentally divide it between two components, one are the proceeds that you borrow from the loan on closing of $320,000. And the other is the cash, the payments you're making year after year after year. So mentally separate them into two components. Right. We've talked about the cash and the value generated year after year that exceeds the cash, so giving yourself cash flow. The loan amount is kept segregated through the structure so that it goes through the parties at the closing table from one party to another, I won't list the parties yet, and back to the original lender. So the lender that lends you the $32,000 on Three. one hand, 320, okay. sorry, 320,000 on 10 units. 320,000 goes out to you, you put it into the partnership, it gets invested, and the party that receives the investment takes it and pledges it and invests it back with the lender at an interest rate that exactly matches the rate that you received the loan and agreed to pay interest right. on. So that throughout the structure, and this is true from the day you sign and the day your units close until the day the loan is unwound in the 10th year, there is always an asset sitting with the lender that matches your exposure. And we can do that for several reasons, but the easiest way is this was, as I referred to earlier, an unwitting byproduct of the decision in Cassan. It allowed us to effectively circle that money, invest it back with the lender, and then the lender is allowed to, to take the legal or contractual position that if there is any default or any possible negative event throughout the term, the lender will only seize that security. In other words, it will seize your investment in the limited partnership units, which then entitles it to draw down on that investment to pay off the loan. So, so, so they are sitting there cash collateralized the whole time. Correct. They lend out 320, 15 minutes, however many minutes later, there's 320 in a side account. They're fully cash collateralized. And on top of that, they agree contractually to make this a limited recourse right. loan. So, you, so the only way, if there was ever a deficiency in that cash collateralization, the only thing they can do is take the LP units. Correct. But the investor doesn't care about the LP units. The investor cares about getting a deduction every year, right? The investor can now sleep at night. Right. That's a better way to say it. Right? On a 
fully relaxed basis, knowing that whatever you can possibly concoct in your mind that could go wrong that we haven't thought about or you haven't thought about over the 10 years, the only recourse the lender has is to the investment itself. And so you walk away knowing your loan is paid and the lender has no further ability to chase you contractually whatsoever. Right. And they've agreed to that. And those, that doc, that is documented absolutely clearly in our offering documents and in the loan documents. Because <coughs> one thing we don't want is an investor to take on leverage that creates a value, but have the fear of what happens if it goes wrong. Right. So we eliminated that. And it's not like this is all on paper and we're doing it for the first time. You've been doing it for years, almost 20 years. Well, it was the same structure that we did in film deals all the way back to the okay. early 90s. Okay. The concept is the same. The legal basis and the fundamental underlying business may be different, but the principles are the same. No one who invests in any of our structures wants to lose a minute's sleep at night believing they're going to be chased on that. Right, right. Not worth it. The other thing people will be wondering about, and we'll do this in detail in a bit, but let's take a flyby now, is it seems a little um, uh, window dressing-y to have money just float around the closing table and go back to the lender. It feels like, well, wouldn't somebody look through that and look to the, to use a charge term, economic substance, et cetera, et cetera. But the reality is that's the Supreme Court of Canada case in Canada Trust Code. That's exactly what the Royal Bank of Canada did, did to Canada Trust Code. Gave them $90 million, and then in minutes it, it made its way around the closing table right back to Royal Bank. So that has been anointed as a legitimate structure. And then Kassan considered it and said, yeah, absolutely. That's the Canada Trust Code circularity of funds. We don't need to think about that it's already been approved see the, the thing here is if you isolate the movement of that money and ignore the purpose for which it was lent and invested and pledged back with the lender that's not an appropriate analysis for this that is effectively what happens to protect you on your exposure right but each of the parties involved in the structure are arm's length each of them has a role to play each of them individually fulfills that role and enters into contracts that give them rights and obligations. And because they're arm's length, because the contracts outline the, the relative obligations and they're fulfilling the role of you borrowing money to invest in an instrument that will grow over the next 10 years, that satisfies any issues that would have come up in Canada Trust. Right. The issue is legitimate commercial relationships, arm's length parties. But the fact that the money starts at one point and happens to end up back at the same point does not in any way violate or offend the Income Tax Act. And the Supreme Court of Canada made that clear. Right, exactly. Okay, so we've talked about the fact that there's no recourse to the uh, investor on that big loan. We've talked about the fact that this circularity of funds is okay. Let's talk briefly about this interest component that everybody's getting a chance to write off against their income, but they're not really paying it. 
they are paying it, but how are they paying? How is the investor paying that big interest expense that they're writing? So what you'll see as we walk through the, the, as we peel away the layers of the structure, each and every component that has a commercial value or a tax value is always based on an underlying tax case. All of the pivotal issues that ultimately generate value, we only employ based on the success of a tax case. In this case, you're referring to the Hill case. Right. So the Hill case, which was also primarily a GAR case, not exclusively, but primarily a GAR case, was based on the fact that an individual can borrow money arm's length from a lender and use that money annually to apply to pay interest owing from the year before. So if I borrow, take out a loan from you of $100. Let's use a real number. I borrow $320 on day one. You borrow $320 on day one. At the end of that year, I owe 11% of $320. It's $35,000. $35,000. Where do I get? Next year, in February, you will borrow from the same lender an amount exactly equal to the interest that's accrued for the year before. So in your example, $35,000. You will borrow it for a fraction of a second and then immediately pay it back to the lender. So what you have done is now physically paid your interest from the prior year. The lender gets the money back and applies it to increase the balance on your original loan. Okay. So your loan that was 320000 is now 320000 plus 35000 Right. And then you pay interest on that next year. And so every year the interest grows. Right. The loan grows which would, under other circumstances, create the theoretical commercial risk of exposure on leverage, right? which we talked about earlier. But it's all that money, too, is circling. It's all circling. Right. goes back to the lender. And one of the fundamental key characteristics of the Hill case is, again, you are allowed and primarily you're allowed to borrow from an arm's length lender on, on commercial terms or on the same terms that you had borrowed in the first place. Provided the lender is arm's length and has real cash. Right. These can't be loans that just add to it with no real money. Right. The lender must be a real lender with assets that are real, that get invested, deposited and used, lent and received back. It must be real cash. And provided that happens and the lender has the resources to do that, we fit perfectly within the Frederick Hill case. Perfect. Okay, and then uh, last piece on on this sort of shortened segment on on the unboxing, um, the cash beyond the circular loan. There's actually cash going into an investment portfolio. Correct, right? And that cash is going to grow over the ten years. When you show the worksheet that presents the product, you assume it's going to grow at an annual rate of six percent. Right. And when it grows at that rate, there's about 101,000 that it's grown to. So at the end of 10 years, if the growth rate is 6%, there's 101,000 that's going to be converted and then donated to charity. Correct. Right? So how much of, a, of an impact is greater or lesser investment returns to this portfolio, to this structure? They actually aren't nearly as impactful as you might assume. And there's several reasons for that. One of the reasons is 
this is structured almost like our version of a drip. Money goes in year after year. So you don't pay all the money up front. And that serves two purposes. It means that you, it takes time till the underlying investment grows enough till it can create value and growth. But it also limits the downside if a year doesn't go so well. Although we typically invest in an instrument that is high yield fixed income so that there's, you don't really have to worry about volatility that you might if you invest in stocks in the market on general. Uh, but because it's coming in over time, the difference from 6% to 8% or 6% to 4% or 2% isn't as dramatic as you might think. So if in fact you didn't get the 6% and you got a 0% right. growth, the 101,000 will drop to about 67,000. So no growth at all. And I'm still in the position of getting all that interest expense written off, which is about $600,000 worth of write-offs. And then instead of getting a 101,000 charity receipt, I get a 67,000 charity receipt. Correct. So you're not, you're not hanging on to the investment returns in this product. They're designed to have significant effect from the perspective of you really making an investment. Real money is being invested. Mm -hmm. It's being invested in two separate ways at different rates and different ways. But at the end of the day, we're not swinging for the fences on this investment in its current form. We're, we're, we're only assuming a 6% return. If, however, you were to do significantly better then the ultimate value generated when you donate your units at the end to a charity will be significant. Right. Okay. And then last piece, uh, how much hassle is it if I'm the client writing these checks every year and taking the deductions every year? What Am I looking at T5013? How do I every year figure out what is my deduction? Every year, we take care of all the tax reporting. You will be given a very professional, very clear tax reporting package. And it's really very simple for the average tax accountant to follow right. because you're really claiming two things. You're claiming losses claimed on a T5013, that those losses in the first five years are simply the issue costs right. related to the issuing of the units. It's a standard equal amount year after year. And then separately, so those all go on one line. So I get a T5013 in the mail that's got a number on it, and I just clip it to my tax return. And that's you put that. it in on line 12100. You got it. The only other piece is the interest expense. Interest expense. You're going to calculate plus that some financing me. costs, but okay. they're small. Okay. And you can deduct those. Yep. And those are paid to the lender every year for them to do the annual advance that's going to fund your interest. And you're going to send me a letter that tells me what the deduction Cover letter, yeah. T5013, a letter from the lender, and an invoice that shows you've paid every year and what you have paid for. Right. And the cover letter says simply, here's what you put on this line, here's what you put on this line. And the support is here inside. So people take their tax information. Some of them don't even read it. They forward yeah. it to their accountant. Yeah, yeah. And if the accountant has questions, which is very rare, the accountant puts it on their tax return and they're done. So it's very easy. There you go. That's the unboxing. Well done. Thanks very much for listening. We'd love to hear from you. If you have questions or maybe you have something to add to the conversation, we're at redjacket.ca. 
And on the website, you'll see the phrase relationships matter. We really believe that and encourage you to start one with us. Thanks again for listening.